Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. This week's Law & Order Marathon winner is Christy Connor of Gillette, New Jersey. Christy will get a marathon decal showing she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. Everything is legal in New Jersey. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoy and Ed Zuckerman. And these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are The Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today we're looking at The Mothership, Law & Order, Season 6, Episode 15, Encore. If he goes to jail for the rest of his life, he's not going to kill any more wives. You can buy a hitman on the street for $500. Dobson has done that twice now. He's not going to be able to do it again from jail. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and the host of Crime Writers On and Netflix's You Can't Make This Up podcast, Rebecca Lavoie. Hello, Rebecca. And your second wife, Kevin. You forgot to mention that. Second wife. <laughs> so nice to be on the show again, Kevin. You don't want to be number three. <laughs> and rounding out our panel is our special guest. It's Law & Order Emmy Award winner, Ed Zuckerman. Hello, Ed. Hello. Nice to be here. Rebecca, so that you know, Ed was producer, co-producer, executive producer, and all those other strange titles that we hear about on about 180 episodes of SVU Criminal Intent and the original recipe. He's written more than 50 Law & Order episodes and 14 SVU episodes. Wow. I, have we panned any of them on this show? Well, I'll tell you, we've covered a lot of them, <laughs> including our very first podcast episode was Corpus Delecti. Oh, yeah. Which is the one about the show horse. I love was that episode. He was murdered because, <laughs> like I said, like white men, he couldn't jump. Yes, I love that episode. We actually, I actually love that episode a lot. So he's also done the Logan classic Punch Out Exit, Pride, The Lost Pants Leads to a Murder Story, mm. Bottomless, and Reality Bites in which the Octomom may have murdered Kate from John and Kate Plus 8. Classics. And we recently covered at SVU's Depravity Standard in which Ed gave us the term Chomo. <laughs> Which sounds an awful lot like a uh, a Taco Bell menu item. Correct. But... <laughs> so he also wrote today's episode, Encore. Ed, are you ready to have your ego bruised? <laughs> oh, yeah. Go for us. <laughs> and you wrote a blog post entitled, I wrote all the funny episodes of Law & Order. How did you get away with that? Uh, well, because I think some of the best humor on TV has always been in the dramas. And uh, even before I got there, well, actually, I got there at the very beginning. It's a, I'll tell that story later if you want to hear it. But uh, I mean, the show always had, you know, wisecracking detectives. And uh, people liked a little humor in the episodes. And uh, very early on, Dick Wolf was still very actively hands-on with the show. With later years, he's 
ascended to executive producer heaven, basically. Um, <laughs> but he was he was in the office. He was hands on. He came into my office one day and said, Ed, I've got your first draft of a script, uh, which we're going to shoot, you know, next week or prep next week. And it, it's good. It's fine. We're all set to go. But uh, there are too many jokes. Uh, there's a joke on every page and he handed me back my draft. He said, I've circled every joke, just cut half of them and it's fine. So, uh, uh, they gave you an inch and you took a mile. That's great. <laughs> so I have an important question for you. Are you at all responsible for Serena Sutherland being a lesbian? <laughs> Is this because I'm a lesbian? <laughs> No, I think I wasn't there then, and I think I thought that was very stupid, actually, <laughs> as I recall. That's very talk radio. That came out of nowhere, as I recall. That yeah. came out of nowhere, and which is bad writing for a crime show or any kind of drama. So I have here in my hand the whole, uh, I guess this is the, the whole leverage we had for inviting Ed on. You talk about he's got a new book. It's called Wealth Management. It's not a business book. It's a mystery could you tell us a little bit about this book? Yeah. You know, in my in my youth many years ago, my ultimate ambition as a writer was always to write a novel. I got sidetracked into journalism for about 20 years and then sidetracked into TV writing for about 30 years. So now in my third career, uh, I'm a novelist. The script actually, be, uh, this book actually began as a spec pilot. Oh. A few years ago in Hollywood, the trend was to buy spec pilots for big money for TV shows and movies. Let me guess what happened. <laughs> that trend stopped as soon as you wrote it. That trend stopped a couple of years ago. And now the trend is to buy IP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. IP, intellectual property. And IP can be a novel, a magazine article, a podcast, a comic strip, a, a doodle, uh, you know, a joke. A tweet. <laughs> so the, uh, but the idea behind this uh, spec pilot, I thought, lent itself to a novel. I uh, spent uh, you know a mere three or four years working on it, so it is a it's in a thriller category. Uh, it's called Wealth Management, a novel. It's not a business advice book, although if anyone buys it by mistake looking for investment advice, I'm happy to uh, to make the sale. <laughs> Actually, talk, talk about about rip from the headlines as Law and Order often was. There was a headline after nine eleven. If you know what it means to sell a stock short, that means you yep. make money if the if the price goes down. That after nine eleven, it came out that someone had shorted airline stocks right before quite substantially. Mm. And airline stocks declined drastically for obvious reasons. And so someone made a shitload of money by shorting airline stocks, and it was actually investigated. Did Osama bin Laden make a couple million dollars by shorting stocks and blowing up the World Trade Center? And turned out, no, it was a total coincidence. It was some investor in Omaha, Nebraska or something. I don't know. But that gave me the idea to have a, uh, a very upscale, clean living, wealth manager who has a client who starts shorting stocks and companies start blowing up. Huh. It's right in my wheelhouse. This is the only kind of book I ever read or listen to. So that's why I just saw me grab it from Kevin. It's going right in my bookshelf. Okay. Well, people seem to like it. I hope you like it if you read it. Uh, wealth management available wherever uh, wherever books are sold. And now you probably want to talk about Law and Order, I'm guessing. <laughs> and of all the franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite Law and Order detective team. Well, I, I think Briscoe and Logan were, pro- were probably the best. Solid choice. Yeah. A lot of people pick it. Everyone loved Jerry Orbach. And, you know, and really uh, no one, especially like Chris Noth. But I, <laughs> I thought I thought he did a very good job on the show. Uh, and uh, everyone liked Jerry both on the show and in real life. And who is your favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. Well, I have to go back to the original. Jill Hennessy, you know, yeah. with, 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 uh, with, with Sam. Well, you know, I was there at the beginning of the show and at the end of the show. 
So I did experience quite a bit, but I think that for sentimental reasons, there's nothing else, uh, Jill and Sam. Right. But, I mean, I was there with Michael uh, Moriarty. Yeah. Oh, my did gosh. He, did he allow you to look him directly in the eyes, or did you have to use a pie plate like everybody else? <laughs> All right, now let's take a look at the first half of this episode, Law & Order Season 6, Episode 15, Encore. A jogger is attacked and murdered in Central Park, so New York City loses its shit. Is this about what's going on in the park? You're looking for some guy that jumped over the wall? Yeah. Black coat, dark hair. You saw him? Yeah. Hispanic. Falling ass. He nearly got hit by a cab. Which way did he run? Down. A into the subway. Great. So this uptown or this downtown? Thanks. The assailant stabs a good Samaritan before making his getaway. Briscoe and Curtis discover the killer dropped a Colombian peso, a coin the same size as a subway token, but much cheaper. A fingerprint on the slug in the turnstile belongs to Francis Murphy, an ex-con who's been selling coins, but he knows nothing. The detectives are able to trace the knife to a store where the manager identifies their police sketch as Luis Cruz, an enforcer for little Joey Jabone. The mobster says Cruz doesn't work for him anymore. Lenny and Ray go to the morgue to meet the victim's husband, who happens to be Major League asshole Michael Dobson. <laughs> he was the nightclub owner they arrested in season five for shooting his wife. Charges against him were dropped during the trial when a drug addict who actually pulled the trigger was arrested, and by the time McCoy and Kincaid realized Dobson was behind the hit double jeopardy, was already attached. Dobson was in San Francisco when Emily was killed. He swears this time he loved his wife almost as much as he loves his children. The insurance agent said Dobson had let the policy the couple had on their restaurant lapse, but he kept the million-dollar life policy on Mrs. Dobson number two. But how does Cruz fit into this? The detectives learn Gia Bone's mob crew did the laundry at Dobson's old comedy club. And he got a 20-second phone call right after the murder. The call was paid for with a credit card number stolen by Francis Murphy. He points him to Cruz's girlfriend, who tells Briscoe and Curtis he's fled to Mexico. Still smarting from being duped the first time, McCoy orders them to arrest Dobson for murder again. Oh, my God. That's just half of the episode. Yeah. Look, there's a lot of ways to find a body <laughs> in Law & Order. My favorite way, though... Power walking. <laughs> Pick up the pace, Byron. Oh, why? So I can live an extra hour? Uh, if you don't mind. Byron, look. I love this old couple. Also, by the way, those punches, you could hear them from the top of the bridge. Like the foley in this episode was incredible. Well, you know what? It's a crisp winter day. The sound of punches, you know, just flies through Central Park. Yes. So those, but those uh, power walkers were prepared. They had their whistle. Wasn't a whistle. It was oh, an yeah. air horn. <laughs> Look, look, here, here. Hey! Very prepared. And is that the way people would summon police in the 90s? Is you would just blow an air horn like you're at a soccer game? If I wrote it, I'd say so. I'd <laughs> That's going to be the answer to every question. Yeah, I guess, I guess so. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, actually, I co-wrote this. There was another credit of this episode. Was it, was it Jeremy? Yeah, don't tell people that. Just take the full credit for it. <laughs> okay. All right. Never mind. We know you wrote the jokes and he wrote the other stuff. All right. <laughs> well, I tell you, sometimes those citizens can be really helpful. Like, oh, I have a clue, officer. It's this knife in my chest. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why people don't help. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the Central Park Rangers, though, 
They guys were, on the horses, yeah. Yes. Uh, they're villains in Elf, you know, but they were good guys in this episode, and they were both very handsome, but they seemed very frustrated that the guy got stabbed instead of actually being helpful. <laughs> he was like, he had the nerve to be stabbed, so he couldn't ask him any questions because he passed out before he was able to, like, answer my questions about the crime he witnessed. Yeah, he's bleeding all over the evidence, right? <laughs> it's very funny. Well, the second clue is that they find a Colombian peso, which is the same size as a subway token, so that people use it as a slug. So the thing that we know is that the killer is cheap. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, Briscoe asks him to pull, like, the coins from uh, all the turnstiles at the subway station, and they find three. Three? Three of those slugs? All of the coins from all the turnstiles? Yes. It's like you need a you need a Brinks truck to carry that all in. So I don't know um, if you know this. Yeah, you know, I don't know. You don't know this. <laughs> okay, so where I grew up in Freeport, Long Island, there was a carousel called Nunley's. Mm-hmm, yeah, and the, the the coins that you used to use to to ride the carousel also worked in the New York City subways. Oh. <laughs> so we used to collect them, and then when we'd go to New York, we'd use the Nunley's tokens in the subways. Committing crimes as an eighth grader. Yeah. <laughs> this was actually a real problem. It did not create this out of whole cloth. Yeah. But yeah, that was a, right. a great way to bring that in. So they have to choose between two dozen high-end knife stores or talking to the guy whose fingerprint was on the coin. We got a sketch from our jogger. You want to hit a couple of knife stores? Let's start with Francis Murphy. Maybe our guy got his coin from him. Murphy might know him. We don't even know if our guy used that coin, though. Well, there's two dozen knife stores. There's only one Francis Murphy. In New York? Really? One Francis Murphy? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think there are more Francis Murphys in lockup at the 2-7 than there are. There are more Francis Murphys working in Catholic churches around the city than there are, right? Uh, Yeah, apparently. (laughs) By the way, I love it when Briscoe will use somebody's name almost like an insult. You know, you got a lot of interesting sidelines, Francis. Like, take a look, Francis. <laughs> Did you write it for him that way, or would he just deliver the lines that way? Uh, he he brought his own personality to it, and he was he was he was very sharp, obviously. Yeah, no, that was Jerry. That was Jerry. What color was the car, Marvin? <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna do hard time, Eugene. <laughs> Let's pause a moment so we can take a look at our cast. Uh, we're going to start with a repeat offender. Repeat offender. Playing a repeat offender criminal and repeat offender actor is Larry Miller. Detective Briscoe, let me help you out. One day last winter, I laced my wife's ice skates too tight. Then another time, I put too much salt in her soup. I'll get you the witness's phone numbers. Three Law & Order guest spots, two is Dobson. He appeared in The Six Wives of Henry LeFay, Eight Simple Rules, and Ten Things I Hate About You. He was not in 12 Monkeys or 16 Candles because there's only so much math Hollywood can do. Um, as far as, like, recognizable Law & Order villains go, Larry Miller, in this, in this role, so recognizable to the audience when he appeared a third time, six years later, as himself, they had to have Green say to him, well, Mr. Miller, and he said, no, call me Larry. Because mm. they want people thinking, did he get out of jail again? Yeah. That's what I thought. We don't do what we do for the money. What do you do it for? I can't speak for money, but then again, I don't drive a stick. Now, that's funny. It wasn't supposed to be luck. Larry Miller has a particular style. This character is very unique. I'm wondering, did you write all of the lines or did he ad lib a little stuff or, you know, put a little of his own spin on it? He certainly put his own spin on it, but I believe I wrote the lines. I, you know, I mean, Larry began as a, uh, a stand up who became an actor. 
and he was really terrific. He was great in Coma, the episode in the previous year, right. which is why we had the idea to bring him back. Although there was sort of uproar. I forget which episode. It was one of the two episodes. It was about to start production, and he was due in New York like the next day, or he was in New York. They'd already shot one day, and his wife went into labor oh. with uh, their a child, their child. And Larry called Michael Chernichin, who was the showrunner at the time, one of three executive producers, and said, my wife's in labor. And, and Mike said, fine, go back to I be with her. <laughs> so the next day he wasn't there. And this caused quite a brouhaha because it wasn't clear that Michael had the authority or had done the right thing in sending Larry home when they had, you know, 100 people waiting to shoot him uh, the next uh, the next morning. Well, couldn't they just do what they do with Michael Moriarty, which is to sh- shoot somebody talking to the wall and then put him in later <laughs> so they don't have to be in the same room? <laughs> anyway, but, but Larry Miller is a great delivery. He's very funny. He was so well-liked in, in as his performance. with that. That's what, why Encore came to exist. Yeah. So we have a Hey, It's That Girl. Hey, it's that girl. Uh, can you name the actress playing defense attorney Marcia St- uh, Stamwell? To mention the death of his first wife in any way, in any form, would poison the minds of jury members. Is that Cecilia Hart? That is Cecilia Hart. Yes, the late Cecilia Hart. Three Law & Order appearances. Uh, she had been married to Bruce uh, Wetz, who was uh, Sergeant Belker on Hill Street Blues. Really? Which I think oh, you yeah. wrote for Hill Street Blues at one point, right? Uh, no, I never wrote for Hill Street Blues. All right, I'm going to edit that right the fuck out of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she was married for 34 years until her death to James Earl Jones. Yes. And I got to tell you, by the way, there were co-stars on a short-lived uh, drama called Paris. And then on stage, he was Othello. She was Desdemona. Larry Miller was Iago. No, he's obviously was the I was going to say, what? That would be something. By the way, there's Rich, Ed, and then there's Darth Vader Rich. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a Hey, It's That Guy. Hey, it's that guy. Does anybody know the name of the actor playing mobster Joey Giabone? Worked for me, you understand? Not works for me. I got rid of this crazy Mexican a year ago. He looked very familiar. Who was he? Oh, well, that was Tony Darrow. Three Law & Order appearances. He often plays mobsters. He was Sonny Bunce. In Goodfellas, Joe Pesci smashed a bottle over his head. And he had a recurring role as Larry Boy Barisi on The Sopranos. Hmm. Hmm. So it's typecast is what we're saying. A little typecast (laughs) might be a reason. Uh, Here are some of the characters that he's played over his career. Bobby Vig, Carlo (laughs) Capazzoli, Nicky Knuckles, (laughs) uh, Mikey Martellolo, and Stevie Matzoball. Wow, okay. Uh, but apparently he doesn't just play mobsters on TV. In 2009, he was arrested for extortion oh. <laughs> when ordering a Gambino family soldier to maim a guy who owed him money. He's a method. He's method. He's so method. <laughs> <laughs> the goon broke the guy's jaw and Daryl uh. got six months house arrest. Great. Got off easy. Yeah. Boy, you thought D'Onofrio was committed. How about this guy? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, can you tell me the actress playing Detective Nancy Jones, who was sexually harassing Ray? That one I know. Yeah, who's that? That was Molly Price. You're such a big shot now, Ray, you can't make it to the Christmas party? I had no one to tango with. Right, five Law & Order Universe appearances, best known as Detective Faith Yokus on Third Watch. Her husband also appeared in 50 episodes of Third Watch. He is a New York City firefighter. Really? Yes. Well, I mean, it's either that or it's just the cover for why there's a pole in their living room. By the way, who's playing Mercy, the sex worker who also sexually harassed Ray? 
Everyone sexually harasses Ray. I know. <laughs> except, except for Thanks, uh, Ed. Thanks, Ed. <laughs> is this the guy to try to show Phoebe in the trunk of that cab? No, that was Vincent. This is the one that hangs out with extra short joy. Uh, that is Fuchsia. <laughs> okay. With an exclamation point at the end of her name. All right. Yeah, a born Fuchsia Walker. She's done voice work for Rocky and Bullwinkle, Zootopia, and Bill Cosby's Little Bill. Hmm. So that's actually her her uh, her working name is Fuchsia with an exclamation point in the name. And uh, not to be outdone, Ed, Rebecca, my co-host, is now going by Rebecca, but the A is an at sign with three exclamation <laughs> points, a comma, and an interrobang. Yes. And what's that? <laughs> Ed's a writer. He knows what interrobang is. It sounds, like, it sounds like the name of Elon Musk's child. Lastly, who's the actor playing Francis Murphy? Francis. <laughs> you mean the guy with the Irish name and the Jamaican accent? Yes, yes. <laughs> I don't know. Thanks, Ed. Uh- <laughs> okay, look, maybe I do sell some of these things, right? All day to lots of different people. But I don't ask for ID and I don't look at their faces, man. Just the dollars. Uh, that's Jean Claude Lemaire. He'd go on to write direct and star as Pastor Jones in the Pastor Jones series of straight-to-video movies. Okay. Uh, he also wrote and directed the black version of Magic Mike, which was known as Chocolate City. Okay. And it sequels Chocolate City Vegas and Chocolate City 3 live tour, or as Rebecca calls them, book club. <laughs> so, and on this podcast, we often laugh at the things in the episodes that are unintentionally funny, but... This is what there's so many intentionally funny things here. I don't know if this is going to make it difficult to get into some good stuff, but there are some highlights for me. By the way, instead of a strip club like the Bada Bing, Joey Giabone has a bowling alley. Yes. Come on, fellas. You want to ask me any questions? You talk to my lawyer. You know the rules. Hey, you. You want a bowling? Hey, you run shoes, you dope. Otherwise, get out of here. <laughs> I broke a guy's jaw once, or I will. What's the currency if you're a mobster uh, running a bowling alley? Like, give people free frames of bowling? Like, <laughs> hey, on Ladies' Day, apparently it's only a buck a string. <laughs> By the way, in this episode, guess who we get to see? We get to see Profaci. Oh, Profaci. Yeah, we later get to see him on a telephone call with Briscoe. He's calling Profaci from a payphone. And then two minutes later, we see Curtis get a call on his cell phone. Mm-hmm. So he had to sit there and watch Briscoe rummage around in his pocket for a Colombian peso to put in the <laughs> chain. Chris is like, no, you're not using my phone. I got to save my minutes. <laughs> that was back in the day where when someone called you, it cost you money. Remember that? Yeah. He's like, yeah. what is it, Profaci? Talk faster. <laughs> There's an episode where our cops went to LA. I think it was a three-parter. Yeah, yeah. While they were out there, Ray was... Who we who was a very conservative, traditional Catholic man with a, with a loving wife, a real straight arrow, a real Boy Scout. But he was tempted. Uh, he became attracted to a woman out there. Mm-hmm. But in that episode, there was a scene where he is invited up to her apartment, or is it's clearly he's welcome there if he wants to go, and he hesitates, and he goes. Mm. But in post production, Arthur Fournay cut that scene. Oh. So, <laughs> So there was this huge discussion as to whether or not Ray Carter should have an affair. The writing staff decided he should. The head writer decided he should. But Arthur and Post decided he shouldn't. Hmm. 
Okay, so we finally run into Dobson again, and just to give the the history for folks, in the Season 5 episode, Coma, also written by Ed, Briscoe and Logan suspect Dobson of shooting his wife, who is now in a coma. And they need the bullet for evidence at trial, but they can't get it because it's lodged in Sarah Dobson's head. If they remove it, she'll probably die. And McCoy says, I'll take that chance. (laughs) Of course. They remove it, she dies, but the bullet doesn't match Dobson's gun. They find a different shooter. They have to drop the charges against Dobson. But again, when they realize later that Dobson had a connection to the shooter, it's too late. And we're all amazed that this creep got away with it. Okay. So as soon as Dobson recognizes Briscoe, he says, Detective Briscoe? Dobson? What happened to the other guy? (laughs) He's on sex in the city right now. He's doing fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not anymore. But at the time, he was doing fine, right? Doing fine, yeah. Back back then. (laughs) Ed, were you uh, forbidden from using Logan's name, or was it just, it's a funnier line? Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> no, I, no, I do not think I was forbidden. I think that actually fits uh, the way uh, Dobson would speak. Yes. Dobson's attitude. That's right. He would dignify them by using their names. Uh, we got a bunch of Briscoe one-liners. Uh, I mean, we had enough for a full season. There's one where he walks around uh, in the park, and they have to like get over a little a little fence. Curtis just scales it. And so he turns to Van Buren once he says, You want me to carry you or you want to carry me? <laughs> and later they're trying to figure out what motive Dobson would have. What about motive? Hey, they were married, weren't they? Always a romantic. <laughs> so for all the great lines we get from Briscoe, I think we get even some better ones from Dobson, like when Briscoe and Curtis tell him they're going to head to his restaurant. We're just going to follow this wherever it takes us, Dobson. Fine. Where is it taking you now? To your restaurant. Good thinking. If you run into the killer there, tell him I recommend the soft shell crabs. <laughs> <laughs> and then later, Curtis asks him if he can help out in the investigation. And Have you arrested him? We don't know where he is. We thought maybe you could help. How could I do that? Go to detective school? <laughs> uh, no, but acting school when it hurt. <laughs> BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Now let's take a look at the second half of this episode. Kincaid has Dobson arraigned on murder for hire, and McCoy wants a second chance to send him to prison. This guy again. Never heard of a divorce lawyer. This time we don't let him get away with it. You were the one that dropped that charge last time. Yeah, before I learned he was connected to the trigger man. This time we can link Dobson to Luis Cruz before and after the murder. People saw them together at Dobson's Comedy Club. Claire learns Dobson was cheating on Emily with restaurant hostess Margaret Nash. 
He told her he would divorce wife number two just for her. And that's the funniest thing he said so far. (laughs) That's when INS captures Luis Cruz trying to reenter the country. The hitman says Dobson offered him 10 grand. He came back to New York to collect the money before mailboxes, etc. discarded it after 30 days. Briscoe says the fingerprints on the cash belong to Joey Giabone. Was the wise guy trying to set up the wise ass? Dobson says he owed Giabone money. They killed his wife, and if he didn't use the proceeds from the life insurance to pay the mobster, they would go after his kids next. Cruz agrees that it was Giabone all along and offers to testify against him. It seems wrapped up, but Schiff thinks there's something fishy about that mailbox center. A quick call reveals they don't discard the mail after 30 days. McCoy summons everyone to the Hercule Perot Memorial Conference Room (laughs) to lay out Dobson's elaborate plan. The cash with the fingerprints in the mailbox was actually the money Dobson borrowed from Gia Bone. He tricked Margaret into calling Cruz's girlfriend to lure him back to New York for the money before giving that information to INS. The result, Dobson set up the mobster to take the fall for his wife's murder. Hmm. Realizing she'd been duped by her lover, Margaret confirms all the details because she doesn't want to end up like Mrs. Dobson number one or Mrs. Dobson number two. So at his arraignment, Dobson gives a great argument for bail. My client runs a business in the city. He has two small children. The children need me at home. I'm their only parent. By the way, he was also orphaned after killing his parents. (laughs) Doesn't McCoy (laughs) say that's because he killed their mother? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All true. Yeah. (laughs) He may have engineered this Rube Goldberg plot to kill his wife, but the biggest lie he ever told was to his guma, I'm going to leave my wife for you. (laughs) Does he also say, and I promise I won't shoot you? (laughs) You can believe me. You've changed me. He just feels like I can just go out and catch a chick anytime I go out to a bar. He can. Apparently so. I mean, (laughs) where's the proof that he can't? I don't know. That was the whole thing. I was very stressed out when he was in interrogation about not being able to pick up his kids, first of all. I was like, who's going to pick up his kids? He's the only parent they have. Yeah. (laughs) That was stressful for me, I have to say. We do have, like, another ridiculous scene. McCoy and Kincaid go to talk to Gia Bone, and when they do it, where else could they do it? The bowling alley? Yeah. Mr. Gia Bone will be happy to tell you anything you need to know regarding Mr. Cruz and Mr. Dobson. If you arrange with Adam Schiff and the U.S. Attorney's Office to grant him complete immunity relating to anything you might mention. Transactional immunity? He's under investigation for a dozen major crimes. You want to bowl a few frames today's Ladies' Day? I was just waiting for a plate of nachos to show up <laughs> and a picture of Schultz. <laughs> or Schlitz. Yeah. Schlitz. Schlitz, yeah. 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 <laughs> By the way, Jack and Claire totally uh, would have gone on a date at that bowling alley. I don't know, because no one would see them there? No, well, I don't know. I, I got to say, by the way, Jack and Claire are doing an excellent job pretending they're not fucking. So, Ed, how aware were you of the Jack and Claire This is what I really want to know. <laughs> when you were writing the show, because. All right, well, now, remind me, was it, was it established at some point that they were? At the end. At the end of season six, in Aftershock, it kind of comes out, but there were little, very small breadcrumbs along the way that you'd really have to go. This was like an amazing reveal. Reveal. Yeah, I didn't know until I went back and rewatched old episodes after I knew that they had been sleeping together. There's a million clues that apparently the actors didn't know. Yeah, the story that we that heard Joe is- Hennessy didn't know, right? Yeah, one of the actors knew and one didn't, and the one who didn't was outraged because the one who did was playing it suddenly, and the other one 
couldn't play it subtly because she didn't know it was there to play. Right. right? That's right. That's what that was heard. the story, right? Yeah. 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 That's true. This is all coming back to me now after 25 years, but yeah. yes. So you have to listen to our podcast more so you can like. Yeah. It was, it was a really a great twist. I remember that. But Yeah. But what the other thing we talk about all the time is how young Jill Hennessy was when she was playing this part. Yeah. Do, you, do you have any idea how old Miss Hennessy was? In no, that how, how old was she? 26. In this episode, she was 26. Well, you go to law school, you finish college at 22. Law school is three years. You could be a junior assistant ADA at 25, conceivably. Right, but yeah. she'd already been on the show for a while at this point, right? Oh, I know, but... Okay. <laughs> she started the show at like 23, right? But she's sleeping with McCoy. Of course she's... So, <laughs> is, this, so is this a case for SVU? Is that you saying that they're <laughs> yeah. underage? You know, and there was an episode where a former assistant to McCoy came back on. Yeah. They had had an affair, including in the office. There's a scene where she walks into that office. I wrote this, and I'm, this I remember. She walks and chokes around and goes, oh, yeah. Well, I remember this place. <laughs> yes. I remember the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was on an airplane recently, and I turned on the uh, the the in screen the, the the little TV in the seat in front of me, and it was an episode, an old episode of Law and Order was on. So I started watching. I thought, "What's well, this is interesting?" I didn't write it, but I was around when it was being written. I was one of my years, and after about ten minutes, I realized, "Oh, I did write this episode." <laughs> <laughs> too many jokes. Too many jokes. <laughs> But uh, so I'm watching it and I'm going along and I remembered that this episode had a surprise twist ending and I had no idea what it was. I couldn't remember. <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, it's been 25 years. So I'm looking forward to the ending. And just when the ending comes on, the pilot starts talking and overrides the sound of the TV. Damn it. Uh. So I, I have no idea how that show ended. Now, for all the talk of the comedy, this is actually a really great mystery. And I will point out, I didn't, I didn't mention some of Ed's accolades. There only have been six Emmy Awards for the original Law & Order. Some of them for acting, for cinematography. They won, Ed won for, I believe it's season seven when it was Law & Order was best drama. Mm -hmm. But also, I think you have two Edgar Awards for writing for television, which is Mystery Writers of America, right? Right, right. I mean, the, the, my, my, my Emmy Award for the show was shared with all the other people who were producers. But you don't tell people that. You don't tell people You need to have it in the background when you have Zoom calls. That's what you have to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but the editors were for episodes I wrote or, again, co-wrote. But I bring it up because, Ed, and I'm, this is my way of getting into a compliment, we talked about sort of, you know, the sense of humor that you brought to this episode, but both Coma and Encore are really – complex and satisfying mystery yes because the whole time you're going back and forth about you hate dobson but you don't know if he's guilty it's like the staircase it's like the staircase yeah. and i tell you i know that you know this law and order is supposed to be the first half is a murder mystery and the second half is a moral mystery and i think this is one of the better ones that gets it both right thank you thank you yeah, the back half was very twisty i hadn't seen a red encore since 19 96 or whatever it was. And uh, uh, it's sort of, yes, it was very twisty. Although, looking at it logically as a critic, Dobson had to have a lot of confidence that Cruz would do what he did. Right. And when he did it, which is a. Uh, pushing the reality barrier yes. there, I think. You but, mean like, quote, sneaking back into the country through JFK Airport, which is not how one exactly would sneak it's back. It's not into really the a country, sneak. But. It's just <laughs> not just that, but when he came back originally, he's, he's arrested, and to get a deal, he testifies against Dobson. Right. And then when the, uh, the, the, the money is found with the fingerprints of the mobster, 
he conveniently, according, and this was Dobson's plan, switches his case, his testimony to testify against the mobster, which isn't true, uh, because he gets a better deal going after a bigger fish. This gave Dobson a lot of foresight into the way that this uh, this killer would behave given certain circumstances. I think that he had a clue, though. This guy was a flipper, like a like a perennial flipper, because he had flipped to him, right? So, I mean, he's smart. But yes, but you're he was right. telling the truth when he said I'll testify against Dobson. That was the truth. Yes, and also, you know, the uh, Cruz leaves the country. He, just, he hasn't been paid yet. I'm not sure that's the way that hired killers actually arrange their their finances. But it, it did switch back a lot, and it's quite twisty, and that's a good thing. Rebecca, did you get this? That Ed just started looking for plot holes in his own episode. He has totally <laughs> got the what the point of our podcast. That's is. That's right. That's right. He's picking apart his own yeah. damn episode. Gotta love it. By the way, Rebecca, did you catch what Dobson said when he finally, when the jig was up? No. Women. Women. (laughs) (laughs) BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All right, let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Rip from the Headlines. You think you know who did it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the Headlines. Plot points for this episode come from the murder of Maria Isabel Monteiro Alves. The 44-year-old emigrated from Brazil to Manhattan in 1995. Alves worked in a Madison Avenue shoe store and was training for the New York City Marathon. Alves was jumped while jogging before dawn in Central Park near the Alaska Rink. The attacker dragged her down a 20-foot embankment and attempted to rape her. The struggle was so violent, it left her with two cracked teeth. She died after being bludgeoned with a rock. Another jogger discovered her body in a stream under a stone footbridge. A task force of 50 detectives, scuba divers and lab techs couldn't recover physical evidence from the scene. They questioned 100 homeless people, followed by 300 phone tips and questioned 2,800 people who'd recently been arrested on other charges. Despite the international media attention, Alvish's case went cold. In 2016, as police in Queens investigated the unrelated murder of a jogger, an NYPD detective reopened Alvish's case file. After re-interviewing witnesses, he homed in on a can collector named Adolfo Martinez, who'd been seen leaving Central Park at the time of the crime. Although he died in 1997 of tuberculosis, Prosecutors determined Martinez as the killer and declared the murder of Maria Isabel Montero Alves closed. I will say that what this is the advantage of having Cy Freighter. He's, he's actually a DJ in Portugal. Really? So anything in Portuguese, he can do the accent. I do think that Martinez is probably Martinez. Yes, but he can't say tuberculosis. Oh, that's how you, <laughs> that's how you say it in Manchester. Right. Oh, Ed, do you remember this crime? Uh, no. No, okay. (laughs) 
Well, there is some. This is really fascinating because at the time that this Law and Order episode came out, it was unsolved. There is some evidence that uh, police in 2016 used to accuse Martinez. They had available back then. Uh, that morning, he was seen leaving Central Park covered in blood. Okay. <laughs> and okay. he told people uh, that someone had been murdered in the park hours before she had been discovered. And he told his friend on several occasions that he killed her. And somehow it took 21 years to solve this case. Huh. That's what I say, huh? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound very, very good. Yeah. It seemed like uh, they put a, they, they had a lot of people running around, but they How many really, people did they question? Like hundreds of people? The hundreds of people. They even went back and talked to 2,800 people that they arrested that day on other stuff. Hmm. And they had, a, apparently I was looking at the news clippings. There were a couple people that they liked, but those didn't go anywhere. And this obviously was one of them or it ought to have been one of them. This sounds like more work than fingerprinting every coin in the turnstiles in the subway. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that's kind of silly. Uh, the motive may have been robbery. He said that he was planning on stealing her Sony Walkman, mm -hmm. uh, but she didn't take it out that morning because it was raining. Mm -hmm. So that's how that happened. Actually, murders in Central Park statistically are very rare, despite what we see on Law and Order. Thanks, Ed. <laughs> well, it, it, even going farther than that, back in the day, Law and Order was doing about 22 episodes a year with one murder or more an episode. So there were more middle class white people killed in Manhattan on the show than there were killed in Manhattan in the real world. Yes. Yes. That's and, why it's so dangerous. And, and I will never go to the Ramble ever because of law and order, even though it's like the nicest part of Central Park. Never go in there. And ever. don't send your kids to Hudson University. Correct. Oh, no. Never. Oh, no. Never, ever, ever. We are Hudson, where the bad guys go to school. Yeah, I mean, you guys both lived in New York or New York adjacent. Why is it that a crime like this in Central Park resonates with New Yorkers and with the New York media differently than other kinds of crimes, other locations. Rebecca, what do you think? Well, a lot of rich people live adjacent to Central Park. Okay. So it's considered to be like a like place that is like the community um, like oasis of the the most gentrified part of New York, right? Central yeah. Park West and Fifth Avenue, right? Yeah. So that's like, you know, it's considered just to be like this place where you bring your dogs and you bring your kids and it's supposed to be your safe, bucolic place. I mean, that's a huge part of the reason why crime there gets so much coverage because it's, you know, it's like the community green basically. But, you know, when I was growing up, it was always like, you're never supposed to be there at night. Like that was always the, the thing. I remember. I remember that was back <laughs> a writer for the Village Voice in 1970s when I was in grad school in New York for an article in the Village Voice, he walked across Central Park at night. And he said in the article that he was afraid the headline was going to be stupid writer killed in park. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was a highly covered story, yeah. And in the following weeks, there was a think piece in the New York Post. The headline was, in New York City, except for, you know, that jogger, life goes on. Oh, my God. The actual fuck, man. That's that's very New York Post. <laughs> it really yeah, is. Yeah. Eh, whatever. Headless body found in topless bar, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> if only yeah, we could have more of those. So there is a street named uh, after her near her home in Brazil. It's Rua Marina Isabel Pinto Montiero Alves. Admittedly, it takes a long time to type into Uber Eats. Yes. Uh, I discovered the street 
on a Portuguese website. And then when I did the Google Translate so I could read it, it said the name of her city translates to Sissy Boy. What? <laughs> yeah, as in I live in Sissy Boy, Rio de Janeiro. Okay. Uh, in America, there are cities that translate poorly into other languages. Oat Valley, California translates to Piss off in Russian. <laughs> Ia Lake in Minnesota translates to Testicle Lake in German. <laughs> Fort Rucker, Alabama is Fort Jerkoff in Dutch. All right. And by the way, uh, Joe Rogan is from Shitstain, Michigan. That's on brand. On brand. <laughs> that is going to do it for us. We want to thank our very special guest, Ed Zuckerman. Ed, where can our folks uh, follow you online and get your book? Uh, well, uh, you can follow me online at edwardzuckermanbooks.com. And my book is available on Amazon and all the other online booksellers. And actually, there's a special going on right now. For the next six weeks, the Kindle or ebook edition is only 99 cents. Ooh. Ah. Yes, you, you can't afford not to, to buy one of those. Yeah, that's like 400 Colombian pesos, by the way. <laughs> and Rebecca Lavoy, how can our listeners follow you? I'm everywhere at Reb Lavoy. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law and Order Pod or follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Podcast. Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Content assistance from Travis Roy, Lily Flynn handles promotions. To get ad-free episodes of These Are Their Stories a week early, sign up for Stitcher Premium. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for criticism and commentary, but not with Ed Zuckerman's permission. Go to lawandorderpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.